The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you, Ying. That was very beautiful. So now we'll continue on with our inspiring and profound story. And we're coming now to the end of the Buddha's life. At this point, he has taught again and again the basic teachings of sila, samadhi, and panya, the four establishments of mindfulness, the need to understand the four noble truths, and the injunction to take the Dhamma as the teaching, as the teacher after he has passed. So then he um, he's lying down, back to the scene, he's lying down between these two saw trees, an old man, and all these beings have come to gather around him. They're the monks, and then there are also the malas, the people from the nearby town. And there are a lot of non-human beings also um, that are told about, that are sort of gathered up in the sky, that people can't see them, but they're there also. And the Buddha um, addresses the monks in particular, and he gives them a final opportunity to ask questions. So we're in section 6.5. He says, it may be monks that some monk has doubts or uncertainty about the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or about the path or the practice. Ask monks, do not afterwards feel remorse, thinking the teacher was there before us and we failed to ask the Lord face to face. It's like, this is it. This is your last chance. And um, they remain silent. Nobody asks any questions. And Ananda is delighted by this. And he says happily, well, it must be that everyone is certain about the Dharma. And the Buddha says, well, you're speaking out of faith, um, but I can see it's true that the, everybody here um, among all the monks, everyone has um, had some glimpse of the Dharma, has at least attained stream entry and at this time doesn't have questions. So, you know, essentially it comes to one of the points that was made earlier, the Buddha's work is done. You know, at least here between the two psalteries with the people that are gathered, there's nothing more for him to do. And so then we get to his final words, which are very well known. In this translation, it says, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. Very simple. So of all the things that the Buddha could have said, he chose to point out impermanence. He chose to point out that all conditioned things, and the word here is sankara, all the sankaras are of the nature to decay. This is brilliant because it's operating at several levels. Um, at one level, he's saying um, very simply what he's been saying, trying to say all along, I have to die. All conditioned things are impermanent. That includes the Buddha's body and his presence in the world. His body is conditioned. And so he's saying again and again, the reminder that we all need to have is that this, is, this ends. Um, so even if one just takes it very literally, it's, you know, it's clear and important that he says it. But of course, it's also a 
profound Dharma teaching that he's passing along. And he's also been saying that all along in his 45 years of teaching. The conditioned world is continually changing. That's a Nietzsche. It therefore can't be satisfactory, dukkha. And therefore, it's not worthy of being a self. It's conditioned. It's empty. Everything follows from the one statement and the one understanding that all conditioned things are of a nature to decay or more generally to change. So he has one final statement of impermanence and one final instruction, which comes down to keep going. <laughs> he says here, strive on untiringly. There are a number of other translations of this. Um, here are some other ones that I've come across. Strive on with diligence, strive with earnestness, and more poetically, work out your salvation with care. And so we can feel the different flavors of these. Um, that he's always caring for the awakening of others. He keeps pointing to that all the way to the last moment. And so then, then his, he proceeds to his death. So we can recall from Diana's talk earlier that the physical conditions of the Buddha's death were somewhat lowly um, in that, you know, he had this illness and we read earlier about how he was um, held up by straps and kind of his body wasn't in very good condition by age 80. But we have a, another contrast here that was, was pointed to earlier is that we have a lot of mental prowess being demonstrated. No fear, care for others, not thinking about himself. And here, here we have just the demonstration of mental prowess that is so impressive. So um, I'll get to the, that in a moment, but just at the top level, he's saying that the mind is the place where we do our purification and development. The body is going in one direction. <laughs> we, many of us have lived long enough to know what direction that is. Um, but the mind, the mind is what can change over time, can purify, can develop, and can become free. So what does he do with his mind in the moment of death? is that he runs up and down the jhanas. <laughs> so it says here, um, then the Lord entered the first jhana. And leaving that, he entered the second, the third, the fourth jhana. Then leaving the fourth jhana, he entered the sphere of infinite space, the sphere of infinite consciousness, sphere of no-thingness, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, or the other way. And so then... Um, and then he attained cessation of um, perception and feeling, which is a high attainment. And Ananda thinks he's died at this point because the, at that point, the bodily processes kind of stop. But Anuruddha points out that no, he has only attained the, this particular meditative attainment. And so this points out also that cessation as an attainment is different from either death or parinibbana. So we have kind of a little differentiation of the different uh, high mental states that people achieve in meditation. And so then he, um, you know, he runs back down <laughs> to the first jhana and back up to the fourth. And from there, he dies. Leaving the fourth jhana, the Lord finally passed away. So there's a, a few things to say about this. First of all, we might think, oh, this is a, a special Buddha way of dying, um, running up and down the jhanas. I think of like a 
um, virtuoso pianist running up and down the keys of the piano, <laughs> kind of beautifully, perfectly, not the way it would sound if I did it on the piano. And he's just showing up, his mind is totally free, even when he's dying, he has a wherewithal to enter any meditative state he wants. But this is actually the way that uh, the death of Maha Pajapati, his aunt, was also described. So she was an Arahant nun. Um, and so it's not only Buddhists who can do that. Um, we also, just as a little aside, how do we know what's happening with the Buddha's mind in this case? And um, many of the teachings, so just step out for a moment, many of the teachings are reports of what the Buddha said. And we assume that it was Ananda was there and was reporting it. But we're, the point is that we're hearing the, the Buddha's words. This text goes to the Buddha's death and then what happened after. So it's suddenly clear that we're not only reporting um, the Buddha's words uh, anymore. And so in this case, Anuruddha um, had the ability to see what was happening in the Buddha's mind. Um, so that's interesting. So the Buddha has died and we have some archetypal and mythical dimensions again going on. It, it mentions immediately that there was an earthquake upon his death and there were other earthquakes in the Buddha's life. Um, for example, when he was born, uh, when he attained awakening under the Bodhi tree, and also a few months earlier when he uh, gave up the life force. Um, that was a section that we didn't read, but there are um, a number of times when there's this kind of visceral response of the universe, shall we say, to the events of a, a powerful spiritual person. So, um, we also see that the Buddha died in full awareness. This is a kind of um, an archetypal death for a Buddhist practitioner is to want to and to be able to have this clarity of mind all the way through the moment of death. It even says at the end of the Anapanasati Sutta that if one practices that very diligently, then even through the moment of death, uh, a person can retain awareness all the way to the last breath, it says. And so this is um, considered an, an important um, yeah, kind of aspect of the practice is to, to have that awareness. We see that um, Buddha died from the fourth jhana. And that is, to this day, that's the highest of the material jhanas, the ones where there's still a material awareness during it. And he didn't you know, die from the highest formless attainment. He didn't go into cessation, that attainment, and then give up his body from there. So even to this day, the fourth jhana is considered to be the best mind state from which the mind can let go into nibbana, even at the earlier path attainments, such as stream entry. So it's tempting then to ask, where did he go? <laughs> what happened to the Buddha after he died? You know, what happens to a Buddha upon death? How can we not wonder that at some level? But um, be careful. This is a, a question that the Buddha was asked during his life, and he repeatedly refused to answer. There was, um, there are in fact a set of what are called the 10 speculative questions that were kind of philosophical or religious questions of the time. And um, four of them have to do with the death of a Tathagata. And they are quite simply, does a Tathagata exist after death? Does he not exist? Does he both exist and not exist? 
or does he neither exist nor not exist? Um, these are, that kind of covers all the bases. Um, and people would ask this to, to the Buddha and he, he repeatedly refused to answer. And, and if he had to explain, he would say, this is not part of the fundamentals of the holy life. This is not something that is helpful for your practice to know the answer to that or to think about, even think about the answer to that. Instead, when he was um, asked this, he would point to the Four Noble Truths as something that was fundamental to the holy life. So the question comes down to suffering and the end of suffering, not so much about whether the body is dying and what happens to the mind after that. I don't think we can really understand Parinibbana rationally. It's outside the range of the ordinary mind in some sense. There's a um, text, the Udana 8.1, the verse at the end says this, just as the destination of a glowing fire, gradually growing calm, isn't known, even so, there's no destination to describe for those who are rightly released, having crossed over the flood of sensuality's bonds for those who have attained unwavering ease. So this would be any arahant, um, including a Buddha. Somehow the mind defies words. So maybe there is one thing we can say is that, um, and this applies again to all arahants, not just the Buddha. The Buddha did say that there's a passing from a state that is called Sa Upadisesa, which means with a remainder, essentially, to Anupadisesa, with no remainder. So it's Nibbana with a remainder and Nibbana without a remainder. So for the Buddha, the moment of transition actually happened under the Bodhi tree, where his mind um, entered Nibbana and stayed there as an Arahant. And everything left after that was the play out of the rest of his sankharas, um, still needing to reach the normal end of life. And then he had the same Nibbana, but he didn't have the remainder anymore. And so in a, in a way, what we related to in the Buddha was his remainder <laughs> um, that was left after his, his mind had uh, gone to whatever Nibbana is. So for him, it was just a letting go of the last of this residue. For us, it looked different. So we can then say, well, maybe if there is anything about the Buddha's death that would be relevant to relate to our path, what would be the fundamentals of the holy life? Can we think about this? We are asked to look very carefully at this last instruction, all things are of the nature to decay, the emptiness of phenomena, the conditionality of phenomena. So everything is compounded of other things. Nothing stands on its own. Nothing is a separate, independent, unique, everlasting entity anywhere. And so in that light, what is a Buddha? What is a Buddha? So maybe I'll leave you with that. And we'll have one more class to continue with these profound teachings. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. You're leaving us with a cliffhanger. <laughs>
<laughs> I guess we better tune in on Saturday. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so now we'd like to open it up and hear from you all. Are there some questions, some comments? And then maybe I'll just say one more time. Uh, if, you, if you can go down to participants on the bottom of your screen to find raise hand or use the three dots if you're on a tablet or a phone or something like that. So does somebody have some questions or comments? Maybe I can open it up to whatever we've talked about today, but for uh, Kim's uh, talk and Ying's uh, beautiful guided meditation too, and Kim's beautiful talk. What if there are some introverts there who are thinking, like, should I, should I not? I don't usually, but we're a bunch of really nice people here. So, uh, uh, Helen, I see your hand. And I'm going to say, just if you're an introvert, just think about if you'd uh, like to ask a question. Oh, uh, I want to ask about 6.4. What is the Brahma penalty? Yeah, nobody knows. <laughs> It's not uh, anywhere in the suttas defined, and people have been trying to figure this out, and so it, no, nobody really knows. Um, I think the assumption is that um, he wouldn't, um, yeah, he is not to be spoken to, admonished, or instructed by the monks. So they think that that's just what is said there, is, and we don't know what uh, Chana did, but we uh, cause that. It's like it doesn't quite fit into the rest of the suttas. We don't really know how to understand it. So thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have a more satisfied answer. Yes, uh, David. Uh, yes, David. David Weisskopf. Yeah, thank you. So um, I, I want to go back to Yan Lee's uh, question since no one else is asking anything. And A, it's one that really intrigued me. And B, your answer kind of further piqued, you know, my uh, interest, because once you say that something's inserted to serve some other purpose, that calls into question everything, you know, and, and it's something that fascinates me in Sutta study is so much of it is presented as literal truth when it's not, it's, we have no way of knowing. It's a, it's a, it's an, it's all inspiring. So I don't know if, how how much you want to to yeah. to address that. I'll say a few things here. This is so true, right? About all the suttas. Do we take all of it literally, or do we just take those bits that we like? Oh, those are the ones. That's the real part, and all the rest. Oh, somebody added that later right? And you can even see, so there's a bias introduced, and you can even see our bias, uh, Kim, David, Ying, and I, in the excerpts that we chose to discuss in this class. We could have chose other excerpts, which had, was all about supernatural elements or some of these other things, right? So there's, you can't get away from this in terms of um, whether you want to take all of it, but then we have, okay, there's the polycanon, 
but we have four versions that are preserved in Chinese, and then we have the Tibetan version. So which version do we take? So I would say that um, um, one thing I'll add is that, you know, like in English, if we were, you, any of us here, were to read something that was written in, let's say, uh, the late in the late 1800s and we were to read the English we would notice oh this feels a little it has a different feeling to it that we can notice the language from 100 years ago is a little bit different well scholars can do that with Pali as well and so this is what philologists do and they say okay kind of the, the use of particular words, a little bit the way the grammar is, all that kind of stuff. It feels like uh, this is older and this is newer. So they do some of that kind of, we might call this as like archaeological dig within the sutta. So that's one thing they do. And the second is, is to compare all these different versions, the Chinese, the Tibetan, the Poli. The third thing they do is, what do the commentaries say? The commentaries are still thousands of years ago, but they're closer to the sutta than we are. So what do they say? So um, I don't know if I'm helping at all, David, but I'm just um, acknowledging you're absolutely right. And and this is, for me, part of the fun, too, is to like, okay, what? it's more... Um, we see ourselves projected into this. Like, even as I said, what the four of us chose uh, to study in this class, it's a reflection of who we are and when we're studying as much as it is about what's in the text. So, Can I say one other thing about this? Because yeah. I do love the, the, the way that they look at to try and analyze the language and the patterns. But, you know, just look at our politics interpretations and you know revisions of what happened happen in weeks months years and the first writing that these scholars are comparing are hundreds of years you know if not thousands of years after the life of the buddha you know the council wasn't right until long after the the buddha so it's just, you know, I just raised this. I don't think it affects our practice or, you know, even our faith. But I would hope it uh, improves our critical thinking. That's all I'll say. Thank you. And maybe sometime when we do a sutta study, we'll spend some time talking about this, this the oral tradition and things getting written, written down and things like that. It's definitely a worthwhile investigation. Thank you, David. And then... Um, Maybe Nicholas, and then I'll turn it over to Ying quickly for an end. I, I wanted to go back. We didn't talk about this part of four uh, today, but David brought up like in four eight, where the Buddha says, if there's a teacher who says, I say something, compare my words to the suttas. Um, and I noticed in there that it also says the discipline. So I was kind of curious for us as lay practitioners, like, is there a space to have a sutta class on the discipline in addition to the suttas? Um, nice. Follow the whole instruction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Go, David. Diana, either any one of us. Yeah, here the, the reference to the to the discipline is very specifically a reference to the to the monastic code, to the vinya. 
And, but I, I love that idea, actually, and we've talked about this, uh, of, of focusing some of our study and practice courses on suttas in which practice and, and discipline maybe are more the heart of what we, we talk about. So anyway, Diana, were you going to say something along those lines or say what? I could add, I could add one more thing, which is that the Vinaya is actually well worth reading for even for lay people in that it has a lot of stories in it um, like this, including um, one section that talks about starts with the Buddha's awakening and proceeds through his first teaching in quite a bit of detail. You know, first he walked here and taught these people this and they got awakened and you know, it has much more detail about converting a bunch of Mataterra ascetics and meeting Sariputta and Moggallana and etc. And so we, we hear much more detail about the Buddha's life, particularly his early teaching life. So, um, yeah, there, if you like these kind of stories, there's more of them in the Vinaya. Well, um, I'm conscious that our time is up. And I, I just feel delighted that uh, you guys are really engaging with um, the sutta and reflecting, practicing with it. This is what this is about, right? And really um, use this um, to bring up curiosity, inquiry, investigation, and uh, in your embodied practice, um, so uh, to wrap up today, I uh, would just um, maybe remind all of us um, that to reread parts of the sutta or uh, the whole sutta, you know, whatever might draw you, draw your attention. And the other way that may be very meaningful uh, in this uh, last words of the Buddha is to maybe memorize some lines even just to Sit with it. And so the last words of the Buddha. All conditioned things are of the nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. Just drop that line in your sitting. See, what does that do to you with these words? And some of you are fond of reading Pali. Could just use the Pali words. And so make this your own as part of the practice and the study. And uh, we'll meet uh, again um, on Saturday as the last class uh, for all of us. And uh, meanwhile, in between, I wish you all enjoy uh, this adventure. Um, may this teaching inspire you, uplift you, and maybe allow it to challenge you as well. So may this benefit all beings. Thank you all. And you can all unmute and say bye to your fellow uh, students and teachers. Thank you. Well, everyone, take care. Bye. Thank you.